Hello and welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman, Saturday Down South. On this episode, Florida has a new basketball coach, Eric Fawcett, and I will discuss the hiring of Todd Golden. Also, um, break down Florida's second round NIT matchup with Xavier Sunday at 1 p.m., but mostly Todd Golden is the topic of the show. Hope you guys enjoy. Hello and welcome to Golden Basketball Hour. The Florida Gators have hired Todd Golden as their new head coach, so we will say Golden Basketball Hour, at least for this podcast, Eric. Um, Before I get your thoughts on the hire, just want to shout out Eric Fawcett's Twitter account, which is uh, loading you all up with Todd Golden offense. And keep in mind that when Eric's tweeting out all this great modern stuff that he does offensively, this is a guy who's kind of cut his teeth as a defensive coordinator. So um, gives you an idea of the fact that we're dealing with somebody that's very into uh, film room, that's very into modern basketball trends, and that's very into data, Eric. Probably right up your alley in that respect, but, you know, here's what the people want to know. Your thoughts on on this hire. Uh, I will say I was first very surprised by it, um, just for a couple of reasons. Um, I didn't think this would be the kind of guy that, that Scott Strickland would, would go after. I mean, this is like nerd basketball um, kind of niche guy. Like, like I kind of thought my, my suspicion was for sure that it was going to be kind of the safe hire route. Um, I know some people were asking us, do you think they're going to go get the big name? I didn't think that was the case. Um, did I think that they would go for like analytics, Twitter's favorite coach? No, I kind of thought it was going to be, um, I don't even know who would be the best, the, the, the best name, like maybe even a McMahon, Matt McMahon from Murray state. I just kind of thought it would be like, a, a little bit of a safer hire. So I, I've got to say, I was pretty surprised. And for that reason too, I would say the timing surprised me a little bit. Um, if the Gators were to end up with Todd Golden, I thought that would be maybe something that would happen a couple of weeks down the line. Um, again, I would hope that with, you know, with all due respect to Todd Golden, who's going to have his pick of several high major jobs. I kind of thought that it would be like a situation where you'd think that if there was any chance that he would come to Florida, um, he, he'd kind of, you know, they, he'd wait for Florida a little bit. The Gators could maybe uh, interview some more guys. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, kind of looking at how so many of my complaints about Mike White were essentially related to the fact that I thought he was a little bit dated in his approach to basketball, whether it was like, you know, again, not looking at lineup data um, or looking at, or, or whether it was like a scheme thing of like the styles of basketball he, he chose to employ the kind of theme was just like, this is looks like it's basketball in 2009, not 2022. Um, so then you look at Todd Golden, it's as 2022 as it gets. Um, from style of play to the kind of players he goes after um, to his use of analytics, it's very pure modern basketball. And even uh, like you said, Neil, you kind of mentioned that, that Golden was kind of known as a defensive coach. It's worth noting that even the way that he kind of um, treats his staff. So he's got an associate head coach named Chris Gerlifs, Chris Gerlifson, and he is openly the offensive coordinator. And you'll see him um, like addressed as the offensive coordinator in uh, the, in, in interviews. Um, I think it's even on like their staff directory. He's, he's like the, he's associate coach and offensive coordinator, which again, is just a very modern way of, of, even building a coaching staff and like assigning roles. So it's just modern, modern, modern with, with everything. So um, I will say just, uh, it was kind of funny to see like, 
again, there's the kind of uh, some of the names that were kicked around, some of the some of the things that we were kind of talking about with White for for years now. Um, I would say that uh, Strickland went very much in the opposite direction and got the most modern basketball mind um, he really could have gotten. So I think that's a really concise and good breakdown. Um, they definitely went with a modern basketball mind. Um, they will probably no longer be one of the easiest scouts in the SEC um, and uh, certainly won't just give lip service to analytics. Um, and I will get into that a little bit, and I'm sure Eric will too. And, and you know, based on the tweets I got, everybody knows Eric's the, the data and analytics guy. Um, so, uh, you know, we'll let Eric dive into some of that too. I, I wanted to say this at the top of the show, and I think it's important to kind of get this out there that this isn't like a black and white take for me. I think it's kind of a, I think it's a nuanced position that I'm going to take on this hire, but like, do I like Todd Golden as a basketball coach? Yes. Uh, do I think that as Eric said, Todd Golden was going to have, kind of his pick of a high major job. Yes. Just like Matt McMahon, who he squared off with in an epic NCAA tournament game last night that I did not stay up the entire time for and watched in the morning when I woke up. Um, do I think that Florida absolutely needed somebody with a modern X and O scheme and that that was like one of the biggest requirements for me? Yes. And by the way, Eric Fawcett kind of sold me on that with, multiple conversations both on the pod and off the podcast about how like maybe in college basketball, you really just need to hire the best X and O coach you can. Um, and I also like the fact that Todd Golden has spent time in the South, um, that he was director of basketball operations for Bruce Pearl. And that as the FBI swirl, Bruce Pearl thought highly enough of him to make him his recruiting coordinator. So um, I think um, you know, once, once Chuck person can no longer do that job. <laughs> um, so I think, um, all those things are positive. That said, it's not like a wow hire. It's not a splash hire. Um, there might be basketball analysts that kind of characterize it as such. I saw Matt Norlander say it's like a, a home run. And that's nice that Matt Norlander thinks that I like Matt Norlander. Um, but you know, to me, it's not, you know, wow, instant jolt of energy hire, Eric. Uh, I thought that hiring a big name coach uh, would have done that. I got a great tweet from Chris Herbert, longtime listener, longtime good tweeter to the show and, and the Twitter account, and just asked like, hey, does it make you, does it bother you guys that, that Florida uh, has a richer tradition than some of these schools like Alabama, although Alabama made a very similar hire three years ago, but like Texas who hired a big name coach last year, and paid him a lot of money and Florida goes mid-major route for the third straight time. Um, yeah. I mean, it, to be honest, Eric, it bothers me a little bit because it makes me wonder what exactly Florida's investment level in at being an elite basketball program is. Um, and maybe they really think that a young hire that's on the cutting edge of of data and kind of money balls his way to dubs at San Francisco where there weren't a lot of dubs for a quarter century. Um, you know, maybe they think that's the best path uh, or maybe just based on conversations I had in the week that they took to make this hire, they were turned down by some people. In fact, I know they were, um, but uh, you know, yeah. Would I have paid 
the $55 million that Tony Bennett wanted to come to Florida? Yes, I would have paid it. If I were the athletic director, I would have said, what, Tony, you want 10 years, 55 million, and you'll come? Sweet. Here's a check. Tell me what else you need, buddy. Um, so that's kind of my take on it. I would have gone a different direction than Scott Strickland did. Having gone the direction that Scott Strickland went, I think this is a good hire. So here's just like one thing that just does need to get, you know, put out in the open um, that kind of will frame all conversation about this hire. Like, so Kyle, Kyle Smith is a coach that me and Neil really like. Um, he's the guy who really did resurrect San Francisco basketball, made it good, and then got hired at Washington State. Um, then we had Todd Golden take over that team and, you know, continue to win with it. And it kind of culminated with this season. That was their best ever. However, I mean, this was like Golden has been a head coach for three years. I will say one of them was really good, and that was this year. So the the fact of the matter is this is a coach with three years of head coaching experience who's only had one really good year. So for people who are hesitant of the hire, which there was certainly some on Twitter, I can certainly understand that. There's no question. You could look at Kyle Smith, um, resurrected the program and went to Washington State and did the same thing with a place that it's really tough to, to win at. So for you to say, okay, like this is him – riding the the coattails of something Kyle Smith did that is definitely a possibility there there's no question um and maybe you see that with you know like the coaches that followed really good coaches at VCU and ended up being not what people expected or the coaches at UConn that followed really good coaches and didn't end up doing what people expected um that could very well be the case um so I think for the situation with you know for especially Neil just saying what he just did would you like to, would, you, would you have liked the Gators to you know pay the proper money to get a proper top 10 coach in college basketball. I think you would like to see like, so, so say Todd Golden is going to be the next, you know, Brad Stevens. I think that you could reasonably argue that you would like the progression to be Todd Golden does really good at San Francisco. He goes to somewhere like, you know, let's say Missouri who had a lot of interest in him. And then if he true, if he, you know, proves that he's really good, then Florida still hires him. Because I think that that's what Neil here kind of implying and what a lot of people listening to the show kind of think is that Florida should be going and having their pick of the best coaches in the sport. They are definitely taking a gamble on a guy who has had, you know, one okay season, one not so good season and one really good season at, at San Francisco who, you know, inherited a really good team from Kyle Smith. Definitely. Uh, it, 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 and, and again, to make that higher um, on Friday, of the uh, of the NCAA tournament, the second day, you know, just after he loses, again, why do you what the timing of that? Like the fact that they didn't kind of go after some other names. You'd also like to say, okay, people are going to be waiting to see if Florida wants to hire them first. Florida should not be in the rush to get a coach. Like, should the Gators be worried that Todd Golden is going to go sign with <laughs> Missouri? Um, again, you could say like, no, Florida shouldn't be in that position. They should be saying like, you know, guys should be waiting for them. So I can definitely see part of that. So, of, of course, the next kind of conversation is going to be what happens with staff. Uh, I'm very interested to know the number that Todd Golden is making. It's probably going to be less than what Mike White was making. Does that give you more of a salary pool to get, you know, big time guys? I'll also point out, like, so the offensive coordinator, his associate coach at, at San Francisco, that's a guy I could see coming over. 
and then Jonathan, I don't know how to say his last name, but it's funny because I've read a bunch of his work working with Ken Pomeroy. Um, he he has an anal- one of his assistant guys also handles all his analytics. So he's getting hired as this you know analytic mind. It makes sense that he's going to bring over his analytics guy. So there's two coaches right there. I could see him bringing over. Um, does that mean that that the game that he does does he try to keep an Eric Pastrana on staff like Neil tweeted earlier? Um, I would love to see it. Um, my also idea, Neil, you can tell me if I'm wrong. I'm going to say that Todd Golden. Um, is going to be considerably less money than Mike White did, or at least somewhat less money. Um, the two, I'm guessing he's going to bring over two assistants. That's just my hunch based off one, his analytics guy to his associate coach and offensive coordinator would make sense to me. We know that Eric Pastrana took a pay cut to come to Florida. Why did you think this would be, this is, you know, ridiculous or unreasonable for them to say, Hey, for one year, Eric Pastrana will give you $150,000 more than you're making right now. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll make up for the fact you took a pay cut. We'll pay you more, um, you know, stay on staff for one year. Let's at least, you know, let's see if we can keep the staff together. Then Todd Golden can kind of make his decision. But that to me would seems like a reasonable way to transition, maybe keep some of the players on, on staff or, or uh, sorry, in the class, um, but also let Golden have his kind of, you know, way, way of things. But uh, that that's obviously the next question is what's the staff going to look like? Um, are there more support staff positions like that? Um, Todd Golden was a recruiting coordinator. He's always had a recruiting coordinator. Um, is that something we see at Florida? Um, those are all the questions kind of racing through my mind. Yeah, no, I think those are great ones. Um, one thought I had on the timing and sequencing of the hire, which uh might address that is that I think we're going to see more and more schools move quickly. Um, and the reason I think that Eric is portal wars. Um, I think that the way that the transfer portal now impacts the game, I think it is two teams benefits to go ahead and move a little faster. Um, and so I do think that had something to do with it. Probably. Um, I also think you know, a good indication that Florida felt a sense of urgency was that they got no's from a couple um, bigger names, either because they weren't going to pay them as much money as they asked for or because they wanted to stay where they were. Um, you know, so once once that happens, do you feel more urgency? Are you panicked? Maybe not panicked, but do you feel more urgency? Certainly. I also think because Florida does have a top 20 recruiting class coming in, um, or top 25, whatever it is. Uh, I think Florida certainly wanted to make sure that they put someone in place based on NCAA rules. All these guys are eligible to be released from their letter of intent. Uh, so, you know, you want to try to keep at least the Florida guys in. That's another reason to keep Pastrana around, I think, because, um, you know, Scott Strickland might have taken a look along with the search committee at what Florida was losing based on having just honored seven seniors on senior day uh, and knowing that they had a class of three coming in that were all going to be eligible to be released and said, wow, we really need to get somebody in that can hit the portal hard uh, right away and then maybe salvage the recruiting class. Remember college basketball, even seven years ago looked quite a bit different uh, when Mike White took over. But one big disadvantage that Mike had was that he got the job in May because that's when Billy decided finally that he would go um, after the NBA regular season was over and the Thunder job came open. And so Billy left in May and Jeremy Foley took a couple weeks and then hired Mike White in mid-May. And Mike actually did a pretty admirable job of keeping that whole class uh, 
uh, except for Noah Dickerson, who would have been really, really useful. Uh, uh, but neither here nor there. Um, you know, I think Florida will feel pretty good if they can keep either Malik Renau or, or Jalen Reed, hopefully both. Uh, I don't think there's any risk in Denzel Aberdeen defecting, um, quite honestly. But, um, you know, I guess we'll see. I know Aberdeen still had the Texas Tech offer, so maybe that becomes alluring to him again to go play for Mark Adams. Who knows? Uh, but I do think so. So that may have influenced timing and sequencing a little bit. also think that's another reason to keep uh, Pastrana on. But I think just having another person who can be his recruiting coordinator is probably a, another good reason to keep Eric Pastrana as well, even if, like Eric said, it's just a pay increase in a one-year deal. Yeah, that's what I would advise. I just think it would be money really well spent, and I think it's money that's there. Um, whether it's the 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 bump that Georgia gave for taking Mike White, or the money saved by um, uh, by what whatever Golden makes, which I'm assuming will be less than White, and then you know you add in like let's let's imagine that like if the other coach, the other assistants, if like Al Pinkins moves on um, and is replaced by somebody taking along for San Francisco, um, probably less money. I just think this would be a good time to pony up and pay Eric Pastrana. And I'm not saying he need, you, you need to ink him to a super long deal because I doubt he wants a super long deal. And I don't think it'd be prudent for the program either, because you can also see, Hey, does Todd Golden, who's, you know, roughly Eric Pastrana's age. Um, do they work really well together? Does it not work? Um, you know, to, to be determined, but uh, yeah, that, that would just be my move. Um, uh, one thing I did want to go back to as well, just talking about getting the best mind that you can to be your coach, which is something that I've kind of been on. Maybe I've even overcorrected after um, I, again, I just thought that Mike White was, I will say a below average high major coach from an X's and O standpoint. Maybe I've overcorrected and Neil, you can stop me or I know maybe some people are thinking that they're listening, that I've just been swinging too much over to that side, but like, just remembering too how like like let's look at the last two years for Kentucky. They just had the worst year that they've you know had in program history, and then they just lost to St. Peter's in back to back years. That's a fact of the matter for Kentucky. Um, Duke um, just lost the ACC tournament or the ACC title to Virginia Tech, who had three guys that were signed to Mike Young at Wofford: Kevin Aluma, Storm Murphy, and uh, oh, I'm blanking on the other name. Um, but three guys that were signed to him at Wofford are now at Virginia Tech, and they just you know beat Duke's ass in a huge game. So like Hunter, it just Hunter Couture, Hunter Couture. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I was like, I can imagine, I could visualize him thirty piecing Duke. I just couldn't remember his name. So those are three guys that were signed to him at Wofford and went over with him and instantly you know like have dominated Duke. So I just like I'm looking across and and like you know look at all these other you know blue bloods that are not what they used to be. I just, it's, it's just, again, I don't want to use everything to justify, um, you know, why Florida would make a hire like this. Um, but the, the more that I'm watching college basketball the last couple of years, it's just like, man, if you were, and, and some of the guys that Florida recruited or sorry, recruited some of the guys that Florida offered or interviewed were guys that were like culture slash recruiting guys that are at lower leagues that are doing well because they're culture and recruiting guys who are out recruiting your league. I promise you, no one is out recruiting the SEC. No one is going to win the SEC based off culture and out recruiting the league. And that's what you're seeing at all these high major leagues. Like, yes, culture is important. Yes, getting the right guys is important. Um, getting high level guys is important. But again, if you if like anyone in college basketball who was winning because they were out recruiting their league, go look at where they're at right now, and it's it's not happening. And uh, that's just again, if there's not that I'm trying to 
talk anyone you know completely off a ledge when if they're not a big fan of the golden hire um but that's just something something to consider uh neil i do think that recruiting is the first thing that you know a lot of people were tweeting at you a lot of people were tweeting at me um regarding the golden hire whether it's a guy that came from the wcc or um you know just mid-major in general um what would be your confidence level in todd golden's recruiting scale of one to ten going into next season so I, I'm going to say seven, um, and I thought about eight just because those early Auburn classes are really what built everything up um, for them. When you think about Jared Harper, when you think about Bryce Brown and the players that that Bruce was able to bring in that kind of changed that program, um, and Todd Golden would have been right there at the center of, of getting those people in. Obviously, you had uh, Persons as well and, and the FBI and – some of that shoe money probably helped, but uh, so, you know, Todd still at the center of it. Uh, so I think you have to, you have to look at it that way and say, he knows the lay of the land. If they retain Pastrana, I'm even more confident. Um, but I think, you know, all of that is, is positive, Eric. So that's, that's kind of my answer there. Yeah. I, I think for me, it's like one thing I really do trust um, golden with and uh We'll, we'll see exactly what happens, but he's got a couple like, you know, Columbia transfers on, uh, uh, on San Francisco right now, or, and he's, you know, was able to get a, a Duke transfer to San Francisco. So whether it's like getting a guy from a top league to come play for him at San Francisco, or whether it was like finding guys at a lower level that really worked in his scheme. Like one thing I really do trust is his ability to identify talent, which I think is massive in the portal. Um, you know, Brandon McKissick was a really, really sought after guy by a lot of teams in the portal. I think a lot of us kind of have, re- you know, realized he wasn't, you know, what we thought. Um, Myron Jones, very sought after guy, 15 point per game score in the Big Ten. I think a lot of us realized he wasn't what a lot of people thought. So, like, yes, Florida definitely had the ability to go out and get the big name transfer to get the guy that actually fit into their system was not, you know, they were not so successful. So I- I'm kind of hoping that, like, Again, I'm on, let's talk Texas Tech again. You mentioned it with Denzel Aberdeen. I mean, there's a team that, again, I mentioned on the podcast before. Like, they didn't have their their pick at the first level of transfers. They didn't have their pick at the second level of transfers. They were kind of in the, the pool of, like, the third tier of kind of transfers. And all those guys have been awesome for them. And that's why they're a really good team who, <laughs> not even bounced back, have been, you know, better since Chris Beard left. Like, um, so, again, and that was just all because of, talent identification and also having a system that you could really recruit to. So I, I really do trust, you know, his ability there. So it's, it's one of those things where like, you know, if like Pastrana was kept on staff between that and the fact that it is, you know, university of Florida, hopefully some of these guys were, you know, watching college basketball a little bit and saw what Todd golden did at San Francisco and got them to the tournament and played a really good game. Ho- hopefully that helps. So like, again, if, if Pastrana has gone, like, I think like, you know, seven, 7.5 for me. Um, if they were to keep him, I would be like eight or 8.5 because I think Pastrana is just like, like guys are going to go wherever he is. And then you add in um, the eye for talent of, of a uh, Todd golden. And also their very analytic approach to recruiting high school kids. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. I don't think they're going to come in and have like, you know, a ridiculous class. And I don't know if that's going to be the case for ever in the Todd golden era. I think it's going to be more of a, finding guys that, you know, fit the scheme in the transfer portal, um, finding guys that work in the system. And uh, that'll kind of, that'll kind of be the, the thing. So again, if people are, if people's idea of like, Oh, can he recruit is and can he go get a bunch of top 100 kids? 
Um, probably not right away, but uh, it's just going to be his eye for talent and the fact that he has a clear, clearly defined way of playing basketball um, that he's going to be able to target the right guys. So um, yeah, not, not awfully concerned there. Yeah, no, and that's the uh, the identity thing. I think uh, is what distinguishes him a little bit from Mike White for me, just out of the gate. And when you look at the, the last three Florida basketball hires, they've all been in their thirties. They all have some sort of tie to the SEC. They all played for a really well-respected coach at the guard position in college. Um, you know, I mean, even Mike White, they played for Rod Barnes, who uh, was in addition to being kind of um, a unicorn because he was a, a blackhead coach before blackhead coaches outside of John Thompson were having big time success. Uh, and Rod, of course, had great success at Ole Miss. Um, you know, was it was different to see that in the South with him and Tubby and and just kind of the mold breakers that they were. Uh, so Mike did, uh, you know, um, obviously everybody that is affiliated with basketball, the sport of basketball at the high high school level or the college level respects Randy Bennett. That's who Todd Golden played for at St. Mary's like Billy Donovan and Mike White, Todd Golden played in the NCAA tournament. Um, Like Billy Donovan, Todd Golden was an all league player. Uh, Mike White was not, but Mike White was not a bad player by any stretch of the imagination. Point being a ton of similarities between all these guys. The biggest distinction, I guess that, that does kind of, uh, ring the Donovan bell is that Billy came in from Marshall with this, this really, you know, unique way of playing basketball. Um, and it was kind of a, a, almost a modernized version of what his mentor Rick Pitino was doing offensively. I mean, just Billy at the time was ball screening people to death before you got ball screened to death. And it's been kind of fun to watch Billy adapt and evolve in the NBA as the NBA has moved away from all those ball screens, Eric. Uh, it's a testament to what a brilliant coach Donovan is, but that's for another podcast um, here. Todd Golden is, they have a serious way of playing modern offense as Eric's uh, Twitter thread uh, indicated, but also just this money ball approach uh, and, and this data driven approach that, that he uh, and Kyle Smith obviously emphasized when they go and look for someone, they're looking for data points, which speaks to Eric's like, the way that they're going to evaluate talent, it might not be a top 100 guy. It might be that they hit the portal because they want their rebounding percentage to be 25, right? And they think this guy whose rebounding percentage was 31 in the Horizon League is capable of 25 in the SEC. So that's who they go and get. Uh, and, you know, so that approach is still cutting edge in college basketball. It really is. Um, so Erica, talk a little bit about that. I know you sent out a tweet earlier, kind of teasing it, saying some of this stuff is going to be real eye-opening to Florida fans, like Todd Golden fouling up two points with 12 seconds to go, um, or things like that. But get get into data and why that excites you. I know it does. Well, again, it's just like 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 I keep saying, you are not going to out talent or out recruit your league anymore. The talent is so equal. You need to win on the margins. And that's just something we're seeing at all the top leagues. It's what we're seeing in the sec. It's what we're going to see in the NCAA tournament. So uh, again, it was just one of those things where it's like, okay, Florida is not going to use two for ones at the end of the first half. They are not going to use, you know, lineup data. They're not going to have um, players that have two fouls, their best players play in the first half. 
So they're just like, okay, so you're losing value because you're not having your best players on the floor for the max number of minutes that they should be playing. You're not getting the max number of offensive possessions because you're not playing two for one. So you can just like very quickly say, okay, Florida missed out on a possession year because they didn't go two for one. Okay. The expected shot value there would be, you know, in their half court offense, you know, just under a point rounded up to a point should be a point there. Okay. Their best player um, played four minutes less than they should have in the entire game um, because they didn't want him to pick up his third foul in the first half. And he ended the game with three fouls anyways. Um, so they essentially fouled him out for the refs um, four minutes, you know, without your best player, without Colin Castleton. I mean, four minutes with him off the floor versus on the floor is worth two points. Um, using the you know on off data so there's three points there um right there think about that think about how many one possession games the gators have played in over the last couple of years and just like again so it's just like knowing that the gators aren't going to be leaving you know cheese and lettuce at the table they're going to make sure they go and get everything like that that's pretty huge and um again just like that that ability to like go into the season with a very clear idea of, of of what you're trying to do and and even again like like Neil mentioned the way that they recruit players knowing okay we want this exact role where can we get a corner three point shooter because we already know we've got our pick and roll guard we've got our secondary ball handler and we've got our dynamic roller who we're going to look to seal and and get the ball into what we need is a corner three point shooter okay here's a guy who's a 32% three point shooter but he's actually 38% from the corners only 29 from above the break but it doesn't matter cuz he's not going shoot 29 or he's going to he's not going to shoot above the break threes um and then suddenly you've got a guy who transfers in and he's a great shooter and everyone's like wow he really improved when it's like oh no he was he was used better it's just it's just there's there's so many little things that just like add up to you why i why i get excited about an analytic coach and like one thing that's funny like every time i tweet out lineup data or anything about really anything about analytics there's like a 50 percent chance that some someone replies to me um, hey, does does Mike White see these numbers? Like, does he have access to these numbers? The act, the answer always is he could have access if he wanted. I doubt he looks at it. And I doubt anyone. Right. Looks at it. That's right. That will that will not be the like from now on. You can know that every single analytic number that I share. Like you are looking at the exact same piece of information that Todd Golden is. It's actually probably is a very fun experience as. At, like as a like I know the exact software that he uses and I know the exact sheets he uses like you will be able to look at the exact same stuff that Todd Golden is looking at and like get to draw your evaluations and then like hey like the Gators go into an SEC tournament and start a lineup that was really bad throughout SEC play and they predictably played really bad because that's what the lineup data would suggest like we're not going to get like, we're just not going to have that happen with Todd Golden. Um, so uh, and Neil, you did mention some of the wilder strategies, like the fouling up to like, yes, I I'm actually looking forward to when it happens. Some Florida fans are going to lose their mind. And even if it doesn't work, it'll be, you know, the job of, you know, you and me, Neil, to educate people on why it's a, was still a good move, even if it didn't work out in a, you know, one, one time sample. But objectively, it's going to be hilarious. There's going to be some some carnage on Twitter when it when it happens. But um, I also think at the same time, I do think fans are going to see like when there's when there's so many advantages to the analytics stuff that people are are going to love, even if they disagree with like the fouling up to. I, I think that they're going to learn to like, you know, live with it because maybe you lose a game, you know, there because they do something that some people disagree with, but they're going to gain wins in, in other ways. So um, yeah, that's why I've like, it's, it's, it's honestly pretty wild. You know, I say for like a podcast here and like two writers here that are doing like some of the more analytic based stuff that for years we're covering a 
staff that didn't really, you know, play a modern analytic way to go like literally to the other end of the spectrum is like actually pretty shocking. And I was, again, not expecting this at all. And uh, to see people on, on Twitter already like, Oh, this is going to be really fun for you. I'm like, yeah, I'm hoping it's gonna be fun for you guys too. Like this is going to be a style of basketball that I really do think that Florida fans are going to like, again, like people, people enjoyed learning about analytics, like listening to this podcast. I, they're certainly going to like it a lot more when it results in more wins for the Gators. Yeah, no doubt. A couple of analytical uh, side notes I wanted to get into with Golden that are kind of that are kind of fun, um, and one is fouling up too. So his first year at San Francisco, they were twenty-two and twelve. They actually lost a thrilling West Coast Conference Championship game to Gonzaga, eighty-one to seventy-seven. Um, in what was a really close game, had they won, they would have gone to the NCAA tournament. Instead, they got snubbed by the NIT, and then turned down a uh, bid to one of the other competitions. Um, so um, in any event, uh, well, no, I guess, I guess they, well, yes, they would have gotten snubbed by the NIT, uh, but then there was no NIT or NCAA tournament. My fault. I, I got my years mixed up. So anyway, they probably were ahead to the NIT or the CIT. Um, it was the year before that they had turned down their postseason bids under Kyle Smith in any event. Um their biggest win that year was a win over a really great BYU team. And they were up two points uh, late in that game. And there were 13 seconds to play. And they fouled Yuli Childs, who was an all West Coast Conference player. Uh, and they fouled him right after he received the ball inbounds. They had a two-point lead. Sorry, 22 seconds to play. Uh, Childs shot 59% from the free throw line. It was kind of his one Achilles heel. And so they fouled him. And then uh, Childs missed the front end of the one-on-one and uh, San Francisco ends up winning the game 83 to 82 after getting the ball back. Uh, and after the game, a reporter said, um, why in the world would you foul up to uh, and put an all league player on the foul line when all you had to do was play defense and get a stop. And Todd Golden gave the most Eric Fawcett answer in the history of college basketball. Uh, at his press conference, which was as follows. Well, if we don't foul, they could win the half and the game 0.8 to 0.0. By fouling the free throw shooter, their XPP became 0.59 points. Thus, we get the ball back for the 0.8 points per possession possession. So if we win the final 12 seconds or 22 seconds, 0.8 to 0.59, we win. That's actually a swing of 1.13 points per possession. Glorious stuff. They probably had the whole media, except for like the Eric Boston in the room, shaking their head. But it just tells you how committed Todd Golden is to like math <laughs> and the fact that these are smart things to do. So that's my my first like analytic side note. The second one is um, another one I'm getting is is well, you said they run modern offense, Neil, but what does that mean? Do they play fast? A lot of people have said, oh, you have to play fast in the SEC now to win. I don't think that's true, by the way, but. Um, Golden's teams are anywhere from 91st in tempo, which is pretty quick this year, to 167th. Um, so they were a little bit all over the place, um, but certainly not as slow as the Mike White era teams. Yeah, one thing that's that's always kind of struck me, this is like more the Kyle Smith. They actually did something like very um, – 
I like, I, I don't know what to call it. I, I was going to say interesting. That's a word that doesn't really bring much uh, description. Um, but under Kyle Smith, they used to play Princeton offense, but they played it at like, without an exaggeration, twice as fast as the Gators when they played Princeton. And they kind of jokingly referred to it as Princeton on steroids. And then they would go and play continuity ball screen, which was really popular a couple of years ago um, with, just around college basketball. But they would literally just run it at like twice the speed of anyone else. Like they would just like hardly make contact on screens. It was like run to spot, cut and turn. Like it was just so, so quick. And they would just really wear teams down. And it was one of those things where like if you looked at their, you know, possession like numbers or like whatever, you wouldn't be like, oh, that team like plays really fast. But like watching them play, like you would be astonished at their tempo. So that's one thing too, is I, I do feel like, like, again, I don't, I don't think you need to play fast to, to win in the SEC. I don't think the numbers would back that up, but at the same time, it's like anyone who knows analytics knows that the easiest time to score is, is in transition. So you definitely see that um, from, uh, from San Francisco, but I, I think too, they are willing to get, get into their, get into their offense. Um, what I think is really modern about their offense um, is the fact that like, uh, like, so they play pick and roll, but they have like four different pick and roll concepts, which again, it's just like seeing the Gators go to the same pick and roll offense every single time. It was just like, like it must've been back in like the dead ball MLB era where guys just like only threw fastballs. Like it just, it just, it's so easy for teams to adjust to. And so like there's, so San Francisco would like play spread ball screen, like three players outside of the three point line set a high ball screen. Um, everyone knows that they would play duck in ball screen, which Florida does a little bit. Um, they really get it when Omar Payne was on the team where like Omar Payne would be sealing the help. And then Con Castleton would set the screen and roll. Um, they do Spain pick and roll where there's a pick and then a third player comes and sets a back screen on the screen setters defender. Um, you see in the NBA lots, you can get that like, ball handler going all the way to the rim or like an easy lob because the rollers defender was back screened. And you also get the player who set the back screen um, pop out and, uh, and, and score from there. Um, so you see that. So you just see like all these different variations of, of, of pick and roll. And uh, I bet you something that like, again, there's like not any one of those, you know, particular like pick and roll. Like, I guess like, like Spain is a lot more common. I, it's, older than people realize who think it's really modern, but um, it's, it's not like anything of that is like particularly like new. It's just the fact that they like regularly roll through all like four of them. It's like, that's what you need to be to be like modern basketball to like keep teams off balance. You also see them guard screen rolls differently because you know, the teams are going to run at least 30 pick and rolls every single game. So if you try to guard one the same way, every time you're going to get cooked, like how much, yeah. How much pure time have we spent on this podcast talking about pick and roll defense? Like literally hours over the years. And it's like hours. all because it it all is pretty much related to the fact that teams knew exactly what Florida was gonna do. And especially if it was like the second matchup and they knew how to beat it. So so it's things like that that like again, we can obviously argue the definition of modern, and maybe that's not even the the best word and is a little bit of like a cash-all for like stuff we like, and that's probably fair. It's probably lazy word usage for me. But I'll continue to just use it and say, like, to me, modern basketball is like, yeah, playing four different pick and roll offenses, so you're so the defense doesn't know what what to expect. Oh, and then roll and replace is the other one, and uh, that I was going to mention where a player starts under the hoop, um, and then you set the pick and roll, and then that player who's under the hoop he sprints up top to the three point line. So it's usually like it really confuses the defense as to where the help is coming from because if a player is uh, that not involved in the ball screen is sitting under the hoop. He's kind of naturally in a help position. Well, if that offensive player sprints to the three point line, 
suddenly it's um that player has to lift with them and it can you can it can really distort who's taking the roller so the other benefit of that is like you have this player sitting under the hoop he might duck in or he might roll and replace or he might go set the back screen of the spain pick and roll so you can really keep defenses off balance just by having that same alignment and three different pick and rolls out of it so um it's it's things like that that are just savvy and like honestly like not that crazy to execute none of that is super complex there's no reason why every team in the country shouldn't be doing that. Um, and again, seeing like, like I think Murray state is spectacular. I think that San Francisco is pretty good. I'll say, I don't think a lot uh, of their players that was are such great. a good game. The fa- like the fact, and like, and if people didn't realize like one of the best players for San Francisco was out with an injury. So the fact that San Francisco was able to like stay in that game was like positive, like somewhat of just Bouye being, incredible and hitting some ridiculous shots late. But the fact that they were even in the game late was just because they like kept keeping Murray state off balance with all these different pick and roll looks. So um, yeah, that's, that's a little bit of what I think about when I think about like what is modern offense. And um, of course, I mean, I tweeted out to something I've always wanted the Gators to do those Chicago or zoom actions, the dribble handoff or the pin down into dribble handoff. There's a reason everyone's running it. It's amazing. Five out basketball. Um, you see all that, that like, that would be just modern basketball. Cause it like really kind of like became popular in the last couple of years. And is part of the five out revolution that has been, you know, the last decade of college basketball. So that's the other thing I think about with modern basketball, but that's, but yeah, again, that'd be, that'd be my response to someone who says like, Oh, what do you mean when you say like Todd golden is modern basketball? No, I like it. They're also modern on the defensive side of the ball. They change things up. Um, a little bit in terms of switching pick and roll coverages, which we've spent hours on, um, as as Eric said. Uh, they're also sort of data-driven in the way that they game plan, which shouldn't surprise anybody. But so, like, the cool thing about – one of the things I like about the NCAA tournament, I promise there's a point to this, um, is sometimes they'll do, like, a locker room shot where you can see, like, the whiteboard. Um, they did one for Auburn today, right? And Auburn's was, like – eliminate second chance points, uh, guard the three point line, you know, like just really generic stuff that um, makes sense. But it's obviously like stuff that Bruce Pearl told his team about. And keep in mind, Golden was a Pearl assistant and, and his director of analytics and basketball operations. Well, so San Francisco's um, their board is always numbers. So it's like, um, for example, they'll have like six kills, uh, which is consecutive, three consecutive defensive stops. Like they'll have a number of kills that they want. Uh, they'll have, we need to make sure our defensive rebounding percentage is 25 or better. Um, they'll put offensive rebounding percentage 30 or better. Like it's always a number. So they, they ingrain these things into their kids' heads, sort of like Alabama does, um, where that was another thing you noticed about San Francisco last night was like there weren't any like DeAndre Ballards like there was no like 17 foot jump shot right it was like um you know we're gonna take a three we're gonna take high percentage quality shots uh so like the shot quality numbers on that game are like 51 49 Murray State win and that makes sense when you look at the final score whereas like St. Peter's shot quality win over Kentucky was like 98 percent of the time Kentucky would win the game but St. Peter's won anyway. And that's taking nothing away from St. Peter's, who I thought ran fantastic offense all night. Um, but, you know, they also made a ton of ridiculously impossible shots. Uh, so point being, like, even their game planning is informed by data, which I think is really cool. And it is still sort of cutting edge in the SEC. We're really 
only Nate Oates, Buzz Williams, and Rick Barnes have kind of dived into the weeds on that. The other thing I like about that, their defense under Golden and him being a defensive coordinator is that defensive culture is still as good as the SEC is, as athletic as it is, Eric. Of the last five SEC champions, the one common thread among all of them is a top 25 Ken Palm defense. It's set for um, LSU, who probably will have their title vacated. Um, so, you know, it doesn't take anything away from them. They're still a pretty decent team defensively, but obviously a better offensive team than a defensive team uh, under Will Wade. Uh, but nonetheless, um, to, to have a defense that's 20th in Ken Palm defensive efficiency at San Francisco – I don't really know how to explain how ridiculously hard that is, um, even though the WCC is, is vastly improved. But I actually don't think it's as hard as this, which is my favorite Todd Golden stat of all of them, is that he had a top 100 Kim Pom defense at Columbia. Yeah, that's incredible. And 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 I, like, again, I'm not trying to disparage the players at San Francisco who um, obviously accomplished more than like the Gators did this year. But I really don't think a lot of these, like a lot of these players, I, I don't think are very good. Like it's like, again, I've, I've, after watching hours and hours of San Francisco today, since the hire was made, like, like they've got some good players. Um, They have some players I also do not think are very good. And I think that Todd Golden, like wrung every drop of talent and ability out of some of these guys. And that's like one of those elements to coaching. It's like, we can like, obviously, obviously always, debate or talk about what is the definition of coaching well like a big definition of coaching to to me is like can you get the absolute most out of your talent and like there is no questions to me whatsoever about the fact that he got the most out of his guys at san francisco this year so i think that's pretty special and uh seeing like especially like these front court players that are not particularly athletic that he's still like guarding really well in ball screens and like the the away like containing really good WCC guards, which there are many, um, without many athletes with these you know big men that aren't great shot blockers or rip protectors. Like like it's again a- astonishing they've defended that well. Um, I'll also point out as well, um, something that's very important to Todd Golden because he understands analytics. Um, is um, so they were thirty. So sorry, first year as a head coach, they were thirty third in the country in defensive rebounding percentage. Second year, they were fifty second in the country, and then this year they were thirty sixth in the country in defensive rebounding percentage. Um, I've been able to watch a couple coaches clinics in the past with Todd Golden, and um, I just know that from his him talking, like defensive rebounding is very very important. Um, and uh, that's something that will be nice to have a change at Florida. I'm going to venture and say that the Gators are going to be better than 335th in defensive rebounding <laughs> um, moving forward. Um, part of that, again, as well, you want to talk modern basketball. Um, so San Francisco always has a very high three-point rate. They take a lot of threes. And because they know those shots are high value, what are they trying to do on the defensive end? They're trying to take away those threes. Um, so uh, this year they were 16th in the country in, in three points, um, three point attempts allowed the year before they were fourth. And then Todd Golden's first year, they were ninth. So ninth, fourth and 16th um, in terms of protecting the three point line. So, one of the things that gets you value from that is less offensive rebounds because more offensive rebounds happen after three point shots. So again, you just see like with every step of the way with Todd Golden, Todd Golden, it's like, what are like evidence-based ways, like statistically driven ways that we're going to get the absolute most out of our guys. Um, It's like hard to look at something on their profile at San Francisco that says 
wow, they're, you know, there's not really a reason why they're, you know, choosing to play this way or doing anything. It's like everything is so, you know, intelligently, mindfully chosen in terms of their scheme, what they're doing. And like, and that's kind of why I'm like, and mixed in with the fact that I think he got every ounce of talent out of his guys at San Francisco. That's why I'm like not super concerned with recruiting. Um, and like, let's say they are able to recruit at a high level, like getting the high quality guys and not just like, you know, the gems that I think they're going to get. Like you can start to, you can start to talk yourself into why Todd Golden at Florida is going to work. There's, there's no question. That you can, and we're going to have lots of podcast time in the off season to, to continue to do that. Um, we do have basketball still Florida wins in the NIT, uh, whatever night it was beating Iona, uh, 79 to 74, um, Florida with another come from behind victory. I forget what the note was. I think it was their seventh win where they trailed by eight points or more in the second half or something like that. Florida was down 46 to 38 and, um, just finally, you know, switched basically to man-to-man defense, stopped switching so much, and and uh, got a bunch of stops. Nice adjustment by Pinkins and and the, the skeleton staff there, I thought, to kind of switch to that and realize that they were just helping Iona with all the switching from man to zone and all the other switches. Really a game where Florida won defensively, Eric. Uh, yeah, a little bit of that. They were able to go there. They got even better, I think, one spot in Ken Palm offense and dropped like five spots in Ken Palm defense after that one. Um, so we'll see how that goes. But uh, I, I think too, just like seeing, I, I definitely had some questions about how motivated the team looked in the, the first couple minutes. But then again, I think like we've talked about their competitiveness all season long. I do think that there was just like an element of like, Hey, we're like, you know, playing our last game at home. We're playing basketball and we love basketball. Like we're going to kind of, kind of decided to play hard. Um, I did think there were some moments of just like focus lost in the, in the first couple minutes, like pick and roll defense, especially um, yeah, where there's kind of problematic. So um, it was nice to see Kwesi Reeves stay hot for sure. Um, it was nice to see Tyree Appleby have a little bit of a nice bounce back game. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm glad they were able to kind of have their, um, have their last game at Florida go quite well. I don't have it in front of me. Jake Winderman did me the great favor of looking up what the announced attendance was. Um, I think it was like, Oh, I've got, I've got to open up the actual one. I think it was like 3,100 people or something. So Neil, I think you're, and that was the announced attendance. So I'm going to guess that Neil, you're, you were correct on, uh, on the attendance at the Odom. Yeah, I think I, I think I did call like the full rowdies, which is 2000 plus another thousand. And it was, 3,023 was the announced attendance. So I pretty much nailed it. Um, Colin Castleton had a double double and I didn't think he even played that well. Honestly, I thought he kind of got abused defensively quite a bit. Um, Rick Patino runs great stuff. That's why I was giving credit to the defense. Uh, Iona shot 38% in the second half after having a 57.1 effective field goal percentage in the first half, which is probably why the Kim Palm number went down. <laughs> five spots uh florida didn't hit many shots um which shouldn't surprise anybody uh really until the second half when they finally started getting some threes to go in they went five of 12 uh from deep in that half it helped that as eric said tyree appleby kind of got off the snide there and, and that was something that gave florida a bit of a bounce back um and and helped the gators separate uh, themselves late, but really to me, it was just Florida got a bunch of stops down the stretch. 
um, and did an okay enough job on the glass, actually winning the rebounding battle um, to uh, to hold off Iona and get the right to play Xavier on Sunday at one o'clock up in Cincinnati in the battle of interim coaches. Yeah, a bit of a surprising timing, but like you said, Neil, it seems like teams are really rushing to uh, get into the uh, the coaching portal, as it were. They win their first game in the NIT, and then they announce they're moving on from from Travis Steele. Um, they will have a very capable assistant coach in in Jonas Hayes, um, someone who used to be an assistant at Georgia, now an assistant at Xavier. He's always kind of been in talks for head coaching positions. Um, I even think he was getting some of the, like there was some buzz for him with the Georgia job. So he, uh, yeah, he's, he's a very respected coach. Um, I saw a coach's clinic with him, thought he was really intelligent. So I don't think there's going to be any kind of drop off there, but yeah, definitely a little bit of a disappointing season for Xavier. Um, they started the year, like in a lot of people's top 25s, they were 26th in Ken Palm. And then just like, kind of like had a, had a good non-conference schedule where they got wins, but like a lot of the, uh, predictive metrics, like they kind of like slowly, slowly dipped. Um, and then they have like a five game losing streak in, in, uh, in the big East. And it was kind of all related to the fact that, uh, they struggled defensively. They're a very interesting roster. Like they play very long on the perimeter, like, you know, three, six foot five, six foot six guys. Um, but then they play two, you know, kind of lumbering post players and Zach Fremantle and, and Jack Nungie. And, uh, you know, playing two bigs, like even if you've got kind of the guards that uh, uh, have some length um, with when you put two big guys out there that aren't very mobile, you're, you're going to struggle a little bit. So um, I definitely thought like what I think they ended up uh, like 80th in defense in Ken Palm. I would have not predicted that um, based off their veteran long wings, um, but they kind of just found a way to be not very good um, defensively. And that's kind of their, their biggest downfall, but they're a team that, you know, there's a reason they uh, they're higher seed in the NIT. Um, they, they were another team like, like I will say the Gators that were probably talented enough um, that they should be in the NCAA tournament. Um, but they lost the games that kind of made it decidedly that they did not deserve to be so. So um, yeah, two really talented teams. No question. Um, I will be very interested to see, uh, you know, what the motivation level is for like Xavier. They get to play at home a little bit. And of course for the Gators, like, like I said, I thought they maybe lacked a little bit of motivation and then their kind of competitiveness kicked in that can be, you know, maybe a little bit easier at home. Um, Xavier has a pretty good basketball fan base could be a little bit of a tough place to play. So, uh, if they're just, you know, on the road, things aren't going well, they are kind of, you know, done with the season. Well, we'll see exactly where the effort level is. Yeah. I think that's an interesting point. And especially because, um, uh, their steel was, uh, their head coach, Travis Steele was fired, um, after the Cleveland state game. So, that's just kind of unusual to fire a coach after like they win their first NIT game. Um, I guess they've built it as a mutual parting of ways, but uh, in any event, um, no longer the head coach at Xavier and, you know, kind of thought of as one of the real up and coming people at the coaching profession uh, as early as recently as a couple years ago, this year, they were 16 and five to Eric's point um, ranked number 15 in the country at one point in the season, or sorry, number 12 in the country at one point in the season, number 15 when they were 16 and five. They had wins over Ohio State, Virginia Tech, Oklahoma State, Marquette, uh, Creighton twice they beat. So like Eric mentioned, a lot of really good wins. And then they finished three and eight. And in that stretch 
or they finished two and eight rather before the Cleveland state win. And in that stretch, their wins were uh, a win over UConn, um, another tournament team that they beat. And then a win over Georgetown, who is terrible, uh, was one of the worst teams in the power six. So just kind of collapsed down the stretch. And, and it's hard to really explain why other than they're not particularly consistent. I mean, there's so many things about Xavier that honestly are reminiscent of Mike White, Florida. They just, you really never know what you were going to get. They have this reputation for being kind of this tough nosed defensive club, but in, in, in reality, like outside of Paul Scruggs, there's really not an elite defender on the roster. Um, once you watch them on film, uh, so that's kind of something that sticks out to me. Uh, they've got guys that try to be stuff that they aren't, like Zach Fremantle, I think, is a very skilled kind of post. I mean, he's a guy that can score. He's not particularly athletic, but he does have skill if he stays in the post. So why has he attempted 82 three-point three point shots this season? Like, that's just not something that he should be given the green light to do, and there's a reason that he shoots 26% or 27%. I'm sorry, 23% from deep on the year and yet continues to, to let him fly. So I just think a lot of similarities and it, it really may come down to something as simple uh, as motivation. Uh, they do have one really another guy that is in the post that I think that they'll match up with Colin Castleton and Jack Nunch. Uh, that'll be an interesting matchup. Um, the ability of Scruggs and Nunch to kind of, bang with the Florida guys underneath because Paul Scruggs is a wing that can both post and attack off the bounce. Uh, he was a tough guard for Florida in the Charleston classic, as you'll remember a couple years ago, I imagine he'll be a tough guard uh, um, in Cincinnati on uh, Sunday afternoon. So sort of those two guys, the key matchups, because I do think Florida has otherwise a, a pretty significant backcourt edge, Eric which hasn't happened a lot, but second game in a row, we've said that. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll be interested again. It's just like, I, I feel like Xavier's gotten in trouble with some of these really good big East guards, just having favorable kind of matchups again, like Scruggs, good defender, but he's six, six. And there is some of those like speedier guards who can just like are slippery and get by him. And of course, with the bigger front court that makes some players that are vulnerable to, to getting the ball driven on them. So like, Will Florida have those kind of advantages in one-on-one -on -one situations to, to get an edge? It hasn't always been there, but at the same time, like, yeah, maybe some of these, you know, stockier guards can get leverage on the, the, the longer, um, you know, skinnier Xavier guards and, and, and finish that way. But uh, it's, it's, it's definitely an interesting matchup. I always love the big East style of play, like the kind of styles a lot of the teams play. Um, Xavier's definitely again, just like interesting, like doesn't really have that true point guard and, it's kind of puts out a bunch of wings and obviously didn't work out for them great this year, but you can really see why the pieces were, were there, why people would be high on them and um, why there was some expectation there that ultimately, you know, got, got Travis Steele and uh, Xavier to, you know, move on from each other. Um, so definitely going to be a tough matchup. Um, it being in Xavier, I think is a obviously big advantage. It always is when you're, when the Gators are, you know, or any team is a road team, but um, again, place that really loves basketball there in, in Xavier and in Cincinnati. So uh, I don't think it'll be uh don't think it'll be a, a quiet one, particularly. I guess a little bit of an early start um, on a Sunday, so we'll see what what that does. But uh, yeah, going to be a tough place to play. By the way, the winner will get the winner of Dayton Vanderbilt. So um, a chance that Florida could play a quarterfinal at home if Vanderbilt wins, um, and then a third game 
with Scotty Pippen Jr., which I know we're all looking forward to as Florida fans. Um, and in fact, like if Florida plays Vanderbilt at home in the quarterfinal, I would I, I don't I never talk betting on Florida basketball. Like I would bet the farm on a Vanderbilt dub. <laughs> but uh, but like just because I mean, who in their right mind thinks this particular Florida team is going to beat someone three times? That's good. Right. So like, you know, and that's not a knock on Florida. It's just like, I don't know if, I mean, I guess it is kind of, but, but like, you know, it's, it's hard to beat someone three times. I don't know if Florida can muster up a third dub against Scotty Pippen. They may, they may have to repay the basketball gods for what happened in Nashville uh, earlier in the season anyway. So, um, but Florida Dayton would be interesting given uh, the situation with Anthony Grant and, and Todd Golden. <clears throat> um, so, uh, we will, uh, we'll, we'll let it, we'll let Eric sign off and, and we'll be back with, I'm sure more after the Xavier game and, and more Todd Golden talk. Yeah, definitely. Definitely plenty of time for, for Todd Golden talk. Um, I'm looking forward to it. So anyways, um, enjoy March madness, uh, keep attacking closeouts and go Gators.